Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of Luke, chapter 2. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. This weekend, I came across this statement. I really like it. Perhaps you will too. And it's a statement by uh, Max Lucado uh, from his book, God Came Near. And anybody familiar with Max Lucado? Just kind of wave at me. Yeah, okay, good number of you. Here's a book from his book, a quote from the book, God Came Near. He writes, Christianity in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. Christian service in its purest form is nothing more than imitating him who we see. To see his majesty and to imitate him, that is the sum of Christianity. And then Lucado adds concerning his coming majesty, his majesty, the emperor of Judah, the soaring eagle of eternity, the noble admiral of the kingdom, all the splendor of heaven revealed in a human body. For a period ever so brief, the doors to the throne room were open and God came near. His majesty was seen. Heaven touched the earth. Something happens to the person who has witnessed his majesty. One glimpse of the king and you are consumed with a desire to see more of him and to say more about him. Isn't that awesome? Just by round of applause. Isn't that awesome? That's just an awesome statement. And if you've been with us in our study in the Gospel of Luke, that's exactly what we've been doing. We've been looking at Jesus, and we've been seeing Jesus through the eyes of Dr. Luke. And last week we completed chapter 1. If you were with us, today we come to... um, chapter 2, and we're going to see God coming near and entering flesh and hiding his glory in a human body. I titled this sermon, The Miracle Birth. Well, let's look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Saints, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you're looking at it, you know what to do. Say, And it came to pass in those days, underline that statement, would you? We'll come back to it. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called what saints? Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Saints, stop right there. Give me your attention. What we have here is a Christmas story, Christmas in March. And it's very easy to read the Christmas story and to glance over it, to read it, just kind of breeze through it because we've all heard it. It's one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible, whether Christian or non-Christian, everyone knows the Christmas story. Tendency for me as a pastor that I have to be careful of, the danger of preparing to preach a sermon or to teach from this text. And the danger is, well, you know, I've taught that text many times. And the danger, you know, the church is 13 years old, almost 14 years. September 24th will be the 14th anniversary of the church. Can y'all believe that? God's been faithful for 14 years. I honestly cannot believe that I'm still standing here after 14 years. And... And that means I've taught this text at least 13 times. And so there's a danger for me as a pastor to read this text and to gloss over it and go, oh, you know what, I don't need to study that much. I know this part. I know this. I've studied it. I've taught it before. And there's a danger for you as well is to read this text and to think, well, you know, I've heard it before. I've been hearing it since I was a child and I know this text and to kind of check out on a sermon like this because you've heard it before. So you think. But I honestly believe that God's word is living. I believe God's word has something new for us every single time we read it. And even just in my preparation this week, I I saw things that I never saw before. God's word is living and it always has something new for us. And so I think we have to, at this point, at this juncture in our sermon time, our teaching time, we have to make up in our minds and in our spirits that we are not going to just kind of check out because it's the Christmas story and we already know it, but that we're going to ask the Lord to give us eyes and ears to see and to hear something new and something fresh. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that. Give us something new and fresh and speak to our spirit now. In Jesus' name. So, chapter 2, as I mentioned, very familiar portion of Scripture. Greatest story ever told. I don't know, arguably the Easter story. Greatest story ever told. Christmas story. Greatest story ever told. Unfortunately, there are some people, there are many people, I think particularly in our culture, I think we've lost the meaning of Christmas, don't you think? Christmas has gotten so strange and so weird. It's all about giving gifts and presents, and you feel guilty if you don't get this person this or get 
somebody that and Christmas has really lost its meaning. And unfortunately, you know, there are some people, believe it or not, that, that don't even believe in, in Christmas and don't celebrate Christmas. And, and some Christians who don't celebrate uh, Christmas. And, they, and the reason they don't celebrate Christmas is because they say that December 25th is not or could not have been the day that Jesus was born. And so they don't celebrate Christmas. They say that December 25th is a pagan Babylonian holiday in worship of Tammuz, the sun god of Saturnalia. They say that it was Constantine who took that date and placed the birth of Jesus on that date to get rid of the, get rid of the holiday. And so, and they say they don't worship, you know, they don't celebrate Christmas because people worship the tree and Christians getting all caught up in all of these kinds of arguments and going back and forth and judging one another even. I mean, there are some Christians who think that you are somehow less spiritual if you have a Christmas tree. Anybody know anybody like that? I do. I remember it was last Christmas. And we had, uh, for some of y'all that were here, we had two trees on the stage. And for some folks, that about, that about threw them off. They couldn't even sing Worship Jesus. We had two, you got two trees on the stage. Oh my gosh, what in the world is going on in here? It's a cult. <laughs> I ain't kidding you. And people came up to me and they said, Pastor Roddy, I mean, you know, nice church and everything. Nice, 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 nice bookstore, nice, nice cafe, good coffee. But what's up with the tree? Yeah, bud. <laughs> yeah. What's up with the tree? You know, when there's a butt coming, you know it's a problem. But you, know, you got trees on the stage. I mean, you got trees in church, and the trees are, you know, the worship of Tammuz, the sun god of Saturnalia, and all of these pagan things. And, 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 and they were really, really stumbled by the trees on the stage. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. Please. I mean, I, I love Jesus. I love the word. I love the ministry. And, and, and the trees, I, we just have trees because I, I, just, I, I just like trees. I mean, I'm, I didn't know what to say. I like lights. And please forgive me. I like lights. Forgive me and leave me alone. I mean, what do you want me to say to you? And people get all caught up into all of these things. Listen, saints, here's the reality. It does not matter what day Jesus was born on. Really, it doesn't matter what day Jesus was born on. You can celebrate the birth of Christ any day you like. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If you want to celebrate the birth of Christ on the 24th of December, the 9th of January, August 10th, I don't care. If you, have a, if you celebrate Christmas on August 10th and you have a Christmas party and you got something to eat, please invite me. <laughs> Go over and get something to eat. I don't know if you can get eggnog in August. Can you get eggnog? <laughs> well, then I ain't coming. And uh, it doesn't really matter what day. The reality is, listen, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. He gave his only begotten son. The Bible teaches in the fullness of time, God gave his son. Luke, the theme of the book, Luke 19.10, for the son of man came to seek and to save those with that which was lost. That would be me. That would be you. And it doesn't matter what day you celebrate, the reality is the fact that he came. And I'm glad about the fact that he came. Can somebody clap their hands if you're happy about it? He came and that he died. It doesn't matter what day it is. Christians get all caught up on that. Listen, pick a date. 
You don't like December 25th? Pick a date. And at the same time, listen, we can't be harsh and judge people who have a problem with that date as well. If they have a problem with that date and their spiritual maturity level doesn't allow them the liberty to celebrate Christmas Day, then that's fine. That's between them and the Lord. We have to have that flexibility as well. Notice in your Bibles, again, in verse one, look at verse one. I had you underline it and it came to pass. Are you looking at it? And it came to pass in those days. Now, my Bible, in my margin, I have what days? What days? Well, listen, these were the days of the Pax Romana, the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. Originally, listen, Rome was ruled by several generals. But over time, a man by the name of Octavius gained control and he was given the name Caesar Augustus. He was given that name by the Roman Senate. Now, actually, the Roman Senate at first wanted to call him Caesar, the king of Rome. And Caesar didn't like that name because he thought it was too common. And then they wanted to call him Caesar, the dictator of Rome. And he felt that that name was too temporary. And then they came up with the name Caesar Augustus. The word Augustus means the August one or like the gods. So he thought, man, that has a ring. Caesar God. I like it. And his name became Caesar Augustus. So it was in the days, what days? It was in the days of Roman peace. It was also in the day, if you're taking notes, of a common language, as it was important because language can be a real barrier. So when Jesus was born, the common language was Greek. And which made it easier for communication and the spread of the gospel. It was also in the days not only of the Roman peace and the common language, but if you're taking notes, you write this down. It was in the days when the world was very evil. You see, there was Roman peace in the world only because Rome was such a powerful force, no nation or group of people would ever challenge them. Every man was a slave to Rome. Unemployment and taxes were high. Morals were slipping lower and lower. Men were burdened and oppressed and seeking and sinking deeper and deeper into sin. Sounds like the U.S., doesn't it? It was in the days not only of the Roman peace, you keep it up with me, the days of the common language, but also the days were very evil. And then finally, listen, it was in the days, watch this, when God was ready. When God was ready? What do you mean, Rodney? Well, again, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us in the fullness of time, don't you know that verse? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. These words, fullness of time, or this phrase, fullness of time, means just the right time. It means when time was ripe like fruit, Jesus came into the world. The time was ripe culturally, and it was one common language. The time was ripe politically, and Rome was in charge, and Caesar had the power to move people at his word. The time was ripe spiritually, because the world was evil, and hearts were prepared for Jesus. So at just the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent his son it was in these days that a decree went out. Go ahead and look at it in verse 1. A decree went out to 
most of the world. Is that what it says? Three-fourths of the world? A decree went out to all the world that all the world should be taxed. And all the world saints, watch this, all the world moved to be registered, everyone to his own city. I mean, think about that. Think about that. One man sitting in the ivory palaces of Rome says, I want the whole world to be taxed and the whole world packs it up and they move. I mean, this is the ultimate in flexing your muscles. And I bet you he thought he was pretty powerful. You know, when I think of a Roman who thought they were pretty powerful, I think of another Roman who thought he had power. You remember Pontius Pilate? Remember when he said to Jesus, Pilate said, Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus said what? Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it was given to you from above. Uh, No man has power really. And any power that they exercise is power that God allows them to have. You understand that? And the same applies to Caesar Augustus. As he sat in the palace making a decree, he didn't know. Are you listening? He did not know that he was being used to accomplish the prophecy and the plan of God. What do you mean, Rodney? Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us, But you, Bethlehem of Papritha, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the ruler, the one, the ruler of Israel who's going forth, is from old and from everlasting. That verse, ladies and gentlemen, was written, prophesied, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem 700 years before Mary and Joseph made their journey to Nazareth. It was prophesied already. So here, Caesar Augustus, are you getting me? Here we have Caesar Augustus thinking that he has all power. I want the whole world to be taxed and the whole world moves, he thinks he has power. He does not realize God is simply puppeting him and pulling strings, moving things along on this path called prophecy fulfillment. Hmm. And Caesar thinks he has power. This was already prophesied. That verse was already prophesied 700 years before Mary and Joseph ever began to go. So here, prophecy, listen, history, somebody once said, History is his story. Don't you love that? I wish I had said it. That's a good one. History is his story. You know, President James A. Garfield, he called history the unrolled scroll of prophecy. The unrolled scroll of prophecy. Of prophecy. And then Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to perform it, promises the Lord. So Caesar didn't realize that he was just a puppet on God's strings to fulfill Bible prophecy. Then notice verse 2 in your Bible, saints. It tells us this census first took place. This census first took took place. The idea of first took place has the idea of the first enrollment to distinguish it from other enrollments because using a census for taxation was common in ancient Rome. 
And archaeological findings have identified this man, Quirinius of Syria, as the governor at this time. Now listen, what I'm going to tell you is very important at this point. Listen to me. At this time, at the time of this writing, when Luke was writing, the Jews, the Jewish people, they still kept strict lineage records because it was related to their inheritance. If a father died, they would inherit the father's possession. Now, you know your history, you know from Bible teaching later on, Herod the Great destroyed all of the records of lineage because he didn't want anybody to be able to identify and to be able to be able to claim to be the Messiah. And that is why, listen, it is very difficult today. Ask a Jewish person, they will tell you. It's very difficult for a Jewish person to know exactly what tribe he is from unless his last name is Cohen. If his last name is Cohen, then he knows that he, his lineage goes back to the Kohathites, which goes back to the Levites, which makes him of the priestly tribe. So if his last name is Cohen, he knows that. Guarantee it. Other than that, they find it very difficult because the records are not there and they're not available. Those with the last name Cohen, they know that they're the tribe of Levi. They're that priestly tribe. And even in Israel today, as a matter of fact, if you've taken a trip with us, you know this. And even in Israel today, this priestly tribe, Israel, Israelis, priests, are preparing for that third temple to be rebuilt. And they're preparing to go back under the law and to go back to the sacrificial systems. And in their preparation, they have prepared everything that's necessary. They have to consecrate the stones. You know, the 12 stones that the high priest wore, they had to be cut and consecrated and set apart. They are on display right now in the Temple Institute in the old city of Jerusalem. They're on display. They've consecrated the, 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 the ash pan that they would have to collect the ashes from the sacrifice in. They've consecrated the wash basin or the lava, and all of these things are ready in place in their preparation for someday when that third temple is rebuilt on the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock Mosque is today, which, by the way, is posing just a little bitty problem in the Middle East right now. Just a small one, that's all. So everything is ready. As a matter of fact, in my study this weekend, I found it interesting, and I didn't even know this, but they are continuing to get ready. I just found this article. I wanted to read you uh, a piece of it. And uh, you can Google this. This is information everybody knows. It's not, not, not no special. Well, anybody can Google this information. And uh, listen to this. They, they, some other articles talking about being ready for this third temple scenario. The article reads, want to be a priest in the new temple? A Jerusalem shop has just the outfit. In a stuffy basement off an old city alleyway in Jerusalem, Tailors using ancient texts as a blueprint have begun making a curious line of clothing that they hope will be worn by priests 
in a reconstructed temple, the spiritual center of Judaism, destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. The project run by a Jerusalem group called the Temple Institute is part of an ideology that advocates making practical preparations for the rebuilding of the ancient temple on the Temple Mount, the holiest place in, Jerusalem, in Judaism and the site of the remains of the last temple, the Western Wall. The past 1,300 years, the site has also been the location of Islam's third holiest shrine, the Noble Sanctuary, including the Golden Dome of the Rock. Article goes on to say the Temple Institute has made priestly garments in the past for display in the small museum it runs in Jewish quarter of the old city. But those were hand sewn and they cost upward of $10,000 each. The Institute recently received rabbinic permission to begin using sewing machines for the first time bringing the cost down and allowing them to produce dozens or hundreds of garments, depending on how many orders come in. If you are a descendant of the Jewish priest, a full outfit, including embroidered belt, 32 biblical cubics long, can be yours for about $800. Before the clothes were made, or, I'm sorry, before the clothes we made were to go on display. Now we're engaged in the practical fulfillment of the divine commandments, said Yehuda Glick, the Temple Institute's director, at a ceremony marking the workshop's opening last week. Goes on a little bit and says, the priest made up of descendants of the biblical figure Aaron were an elite group entrusted with the temple and its rituals, such as sacrificing animals and making other offerings to God. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light. Let me be a salt.